Hello. Oh, hello. Hello, Ed. Hello, boys, with a Z. Yes. <laughs> how are you, Eddie? I'm really good today. Good. How how um what's what's the weather like up in old New York today? It was super beautiful today. I was in the park twice. I took some pictures and posted them on the Facebook. It was so beautiful today. Were you bird feeding? I was, and squirrel feeding. Lovely. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you could join us this evening. Um, Me too. We, uh, gosh. Now, now, the three of us met live yeah. and in person with the star-studded cast, except for probably my contribution as the undertaker. <laughs> um, we, we met in Signature Theater's production of Sunset Boulevard. Well, isn't that something? Yeah, and um, we won't have to. We don't have to talk about that show. I think all of us just usually stood around waiting to see if the staircase was going to work. <laughs> but um, that's the, that's the first time that we actually got to be in your presence as a a performer who is so well crafted. And what I, what we wanted to focus on tonight was not only your amazing. Um, performance skills and we'll talk about maybe your journey as an actor but my gosh now I'm gonna list some titles and you're gonna have maybe it correct me or add on to them but you okay well, have we started yet are we recording yes we are recording <laughs> oh well I'll fix my hair here yeah yeah <laughs> I should probably put on some socks <laughs> you as a, a writer are a author a lyricist, a composer, and a and a what is that? Does that, that cover everything that you do as a writer? I'm I'm also a poet, and it, I I've done a biography, and oh I've done some short stories. It's wow! Awesome. Yeah. But now, did, did the the writing come to you after you were got the bug as a performer? Um, let me tell you, <laughs> when I was in junior high school, I was in Mrs. Oliphant's chorus class, and you know, because I loved it so much, I just thought I must be her favorite. So I got this idea. I stole a plot from a Little Rascals episode, the one where they throw Darla in the volcano during a show. <laughs> and I decided I was going to take that theme and I would take some songs from our chorus book and put them together. And I, I wrote out some of my little lines and I brought it to Mrs. Oliphant and I said, here's our show we're going to do for the whole school. And she was so horrified. She's like, what? what we don't have money. We don't have time. To, and, and who are you? Why are you doing this? <laughs> I was absolutely crushed. So I get to high school. And at this point, I've seen one musical. I saw the high school production of um, The Music Man. And I decided I was going to start writing musicals. So in my senior year at high school, I had a teacher who did love me. And she encouraged me and everything. I wrote three musicals, book, music, and lyrics while I was in high school. Uh, and I'd only seen a couple of musicals at this point. That's amazing. <laughs> it's just so stupid. You know, my <laughs> old teacher 
uh, Mabel Ritzman, before she died, she sent me two gifts that I had given her for opening nights as a gift to me. But she found one of those scripts of those terrible musicals that I wrote in high school, and she sent it to me. I've got it over here on the shelf, and I've never had the nerve to open it. <laughs> oh my God, you have Maybe to. Maybe someday, if I was still drinking or smoking marijuana, I would open it. But no, as a sober person, no, no, I, I can't. <laughs> oh, Eddie, we need to produce that show so we can all see it. Maybe we can get together, we can read it aloud. Yes. <laughs> we'll have a Zoom reading. So this progresses. I I go to um, college at Oklahoma University, and I get entered in the Nats singing competition. And you'd need a German group, a French group, an Italian group, and a, an American group. And I decide I'm going to write my own songs for the American group. And everybody's saying, oh, you'll be disqualified if you enter your own. Well, I won the whole fucking thing. And I got a scholarship to the Manhattan School of Music. And I left Oklahoma. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so I get here. I start my career. And sometime around 1977, I'd already been on Broadway like three times at this point. I'm doing a production of Jacques Brel in Rhode Island, and I'm playing opposite a woman who had done the leading role in Jacques Brel 12 times, including replacing into it in New York. And we're sitting back to back while somebody is trying to rehearse a song that they can't do. And she turns, we're back to back in folding chairs, and she leans over her shoulders. She goes, what are we doing? doing this old thing that's been done a million times. Why, why don't we do something for each other? And I said, well, I, I'm going to write my own version of Jacques Brel. So I do. This woman, this lesbian set designer gets a load of it, and she says, I'm going to produce this. And I'm like, what? Well, my dream was to put it into the theater where starting here, starting now was, she got us that theater and we opened my show identity and other crises in the theater where starting here starting now had been wow and i look back on we didn't even have a contract we just shook hands you know? wow of course because you know different times different friends. oh my god yeah i'll tell you two other different time stories a couple of years after that i wrote a piece called oliver quaid which I based on the freaking Requiem Mass. I, I took the scenes of the Requiem Mass in Latin, translated them into English, wrote a show about a, a relentless guy in show business determined to get ahead at all costs, even if it killed him. And I used all the Latin sounds to be this, the, the scenes of New York, you know, the, the, the sound of the subway train is, or the, the, uh, whore on the street corner is singing Rex Tremendi. And, and it, it was a terribly clever idea, but we got this thing produced at the American Jewish Theater based on the Latin Requiem Mass of the Catholic Church. I mean, the whole thing was impossible. And of course I starred myself in it. And the, fa the fact that it was opening in New York with no contract, you know, just a handshake, it just was all perfectly normal right and uh, you know because that's how it was that well this leads up to 
1988. No, no, sorry, back a few years. I'm re I'm rehearsing um, Cyrano, the music. No, sorry, the Three Musketeers on Broadway at the Broadway Theater, and we have the fight director from the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I'm playing Cardinal Richelieu, who's extremely evil. And he says to me in the wings one day, you know, Ed, you should play Shylock. And I went home and I looked at the play and I started working on the monologues and I thought, I, I would kill to play this role. I, I am this role, but nobody's going to hire me to play Shylock because I've got nothing but musicals on my resume. So I composed it into an opera. I took it to Janet Hayes Walker, the woman who ran the York Theater in those days. And I played through the whole thing from beginning to end in her apartment, playing all the roles in front of her and the rest of the board. I played the last note and she said, we're going to do it. And we shook hands and that was it. And that was fucking produced in New York. <laughs> wow. And it got me a drama desk nomination. I was nominated for best actor in it. And, you know, after we shook hands, I went out on tour with Pippin, with Ben Vereen. And the whole time I'm out there, I'm thinking, she's not going to produce my quasi-opera that I wrote out of, uh, uh, not Death in Venice. Out of <laughs> Wowzers. Yes. So you were, you, you were in tour with Pippin? Yes, I, I did the final tour of the original version of Pippin. I played Charlemagne with fucking Ben Vereen. Wow. Wow. So um, how about your uh, shows during COVID? Was there like that weird last year where maybe a couple things happened through uh, Zoom or like people filmed some of your stuff that you had written? Um, in... in like November or December, I did a Zoom reading of Murder at the Apthorpe, which was supposed to stream right then. That was New Jersey Rep did that with Harriet Harris. And I went away on vacation thinking that it was going to air while I was gone. And it didn't. It only aired like a week ago. Huh. Yeah. Um, I think I think there's a, a fascinating story about how you got into Les Mis. Oh, my God. This was so freaking unbelievable. This was at the height of my being successful with auditioning. It's like I had sort of winnowed auditioning down to a science. And if I went in for something, there was a very good chance I was going to get it in, in my group. So I remember one day I went into a, a big audition room and I saw a bunch of old guys down at the end of the hallway and I thought, oh, that's where I'm going. There's the character men down there. And, and as I get closer to the character men, I hear one of them say to the other, oh, great, Ed Dixon's here. We can all go home now. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like that. And I saw that Les Mis was coming to New York and I thought, I'm going to book that thing, whatever I have to do. I bought the book to Les Miserables, the Victor Hugo. I read through it. I decided who I was the most like. Now, at that point, there was just the movie with Charles Lawton. So I thought I should be Javert because I'm going to be like Charles Lawton. So I 
I blued in every reference to Javert in the entire book, and I yellowed in every line of his. I typed it into a script. I worked on it like a script. I wrote a song that I thought captured the qualities that I saw as my Charles Lawton version of Javert, and I took it to the very first audition when they started first casting for Les Mis. Now, John Caird and Trevor Nunn were both there. They got up from behind the table. They came over and they put their arms around me and they said, do you ever sing other people's material? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I was going to book Javert. Little did I know they'd already decided it was going to be Terry Mann and they were going to gussy him up in a sort of a band uniform and make him look super sexy. And that was their vision of the role. And that is not what I was selling. So I, I wasn't in the original cast. And I thought, well, that's that. So the show opens in New York. They call me in for Jean Valjean. Well, in those days, I had really great floating high notes and I had a really terrific mixed voice high B flat. So I go to the audition, I do bring him home, it goes great. I'm like, they're gonna fucking offer this to me. So then they ask me to do the really high part and I do and they say, yeah, but we don't want it in mixed voice, will you belt it? And I'm like, I don't really have a high B flat and I never have. And they say, well, try it. So I try it and it does exactly what you think it would do. And so they, I hear from, this is in the, the Broadway theater and I hear from the back of the house, you wanna go get some water? And I'm like, yeah, but water is not gonna give me a high B flat. <laughs> so, so, so I go off into the wings, I get some water, I come back and I get back to center stage and I hear, do you have something funny? And I thought, well, that's the end of my Jean Valjean audition, but, I had a song that I'd written myself that I thought was right for Tenardier. Oh, by the way, that song that I wrote for Javert turned out to be my most used audition song for the next 10 years. So it's not like I didn't get anything out of it. Wow. But anyway, I, I sing this song called Fair Play that I had written for the Three Musketeers. And... Um, it, I did it in the style of Tenardier. I get to the end of it and they say, we'll do master of the house for us. And I'm like, I don't know master of the house. So they say, go down into the pit and read it over the accompanist's shoulder. So I go down into the pit and I realize one of my old, old friends is down there playing the piano and I hadn't known it till I got down there. So I put my arm around her, sit on the bench, facing the sheet music, read through it, rocking back and forth. I get to the end of the song and I hear from the back of the auditorium, so will you do it? <laughs> and I said, don't you think you should call my agent? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, but will you do it? And ever since then, I every time I think about it, I think, this is something you would see in a Hollywood movie and you'd go, oh, come on. That's not believable. It doesn't it happen, happen that way. way. No. Well, it did that day. And I ended up doing it 1,700 times. Wow. Is, is oh, that the count? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, they wanted me to go in a week later because the Leo Burmester, who created the role of Tenardier, was one of the very first people to leave the show. 
And um, so they needed me immediately. And I couldn't learn it in a week. It's just too much. And Master of the House is freaking impossible. And there's a prop move on every single line. So at the end of a week, I said, guys, I'm not ready. So they put an understudy on and gave me like three more days. The night I went on for Tenardier, I walked out there and I thought, the ushers at the Broadway theater know more about this song than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but a couple of months later, I knew more about the song than anybody. <laughs> who who were some of your Mrs. Tenardiers? Uh, originally, I was with Jennifer Butt, who was the original. And um, she had been in so many of their projects. So she did so many much work with Trevor. And um, she wasn't even right for the part. She was a sweet little pretty redhead when Mrs. Tenardier is described as a mountain of a woman in the book. But she was terrific in the part and a wonderful partner. And I dearly loved her. And then she was replaced by Evelyn Barron, who was much more right for the part. Uh, one of the things that happened during, you know, when you do a show that many times, everything that can possibly happen will happen. So every permutation of every part happened. After you've been open for about six months, you never do a show with the entire company. There's always somebody on vacation or somebody sick or a new replacement coming in. So I went through every single possible possibility for the Mrs. Tenardier understudies. And some of them were fantastic. But one woman was a Hispanic woman who was a little um, plump and short, and she was so freaking talented. And I thought, she's so talented, but what is going to happen? Well, of course, it was Olga Merides, who was the queen of Latin commercials. And then she was nominated for a Tony for um, not under the bridge. The other, the other in the Heights, <laughs> she played the abuela. And I, I called her when she got, I think she won the Tony. I called her and she said, oh, Ed, it's so interesting who called and who didn't. <laughs> <laughs> When you leave a show like that, do you ever want to like jump back into it for like, you know, the 25th, 30th anniversary, blah, blah, blah? Or is it kind of like, no, been there, done that, I'm going to move well, on? Well, you know, it. when you do, nobody ever does a show 1,700 times. There, It's an indescribable experience. Like you're just pitting yourself against yourself every day because your body and your mind don't really want to do it, but you want to do it, but your body doesn't really, and sometimes your brain starts playing tricks with you because you've done so many repetitions and the brain doesn't really like that. So when I finished it, I, I felt I was truly, friend they did call me up like a year later and said, listen, we've got a disaster, somebody's sick and the understudy's out of town and we just don't know what to do. And I said, guys, I would do it, but I literally can't. When I finish something, I release it, and I don't remember anything. I mean, one day I was standing outside a, 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 an audition room, and somebody was singing a song, and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I should learn that. And then I went, oh, my God, 
That's the sewer song. You sang that 1,700 times. Wow. <laughs> uh, about 10 years later, uh, they asked me to do it in Houston, a, a wonderful company. They put together a wonderful, and I said, guys, I'm too old. I was really fat at that point. In fact, somebody sent me a picture from that production the other day. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so fat. But I, they said, no, we want you to do it. And I'm telling you, it was so interesting coming. If, when you've done something that many times, you know something about every single line that nobody else knows. And I, as I was working it up again, I thought, there, there's information in here that there's just nobody else knows it. They may never know it because just from the sheer repetition, I tried watching a few seconds of the movie and I thought he looked at this script for like half an hour. He has no fucking idea what these lines mean. Oh, you mean the latest musical movie that was made? Yeah, the Les Mis movie. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a pretty big discussion about that movie. Yeah, I mean, I can't discuss it because I didn't really see it, but I watched a little bit of the Tenardier, and I'm like, you don't you don't know what these lines fucking mean, pal. Sorry. Yeah, it was almost as if um, I mean, I'm sure Hollywood has a different way to, that they want to make. Uh, they want to, I guess, attract people to the movies. I never forget. Of course, the, of course. I, I never forget. We went and saw Dreamgirls Christmas Eve night when it came out, and like right at, at the end of the opening number, some guy way far back in the movie theater said, "Oh God, this is a fucking musical." <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, <laughs> buckle, it is up. <laughs> buckle up. Buckle <laughs> up. So, Ed, what does it take for someone like yourself to really love? I mean, just really love New York and love what you do and and be a part of just that wonderful journey. How do you not sometimes just feel? I mean, I've only watched uh, Pretend It's a City a couple uh, a couple episodes and I'm trying to watch that. But like, you know, living in New York, I'm assuming it can be pretty hard. Well, it was always my dream. Um, you know, I. I saw it on TV when I was in Nowheresville, Oklahoma, and I got this dream that I was going to come here. And by the way, I first came here in 1968, and I came here with $100. You could move to New York with $100 in 1968. Everything was possible. And back then, I felt it was the most exciting place in the world, and they hadn't turned Broadway into a tourist trap yet. So you could walk through the, the uh, theater district and just be overwhelmed with the glamour of it all. I mean, all of that is gone, all of it. But in, in those formative years when I was making my way, it I didn't even want to take vacations. I just wanted to be here every second because this was where it was happening. Yeah. Are there any other cities besides New York that feels like home because you've been there kind of you know so many times you're like i can't wait to try that restaurant that i was well at. i had a great um reaction to washington dc i had a weird thing happen where i came to do a show at the um at the shakespeare theater it segued directly into a show at signature and that segued directly into a show at Lincoln at uh, Kennedy Center. So I was in Washington for like a year and a half. Wow. A total accident and each jo job accidentally dovetailed into the other. 
And I thought I could live here. I could absolutely live here. Wow. And I thought that about Chicago. Um, Chicago is a real town. It's one of the only towns in America. All the others, you know, the little Cincinnati's and the Pittsburgh's, and all, they're not really towns. Boston is a town, but I didn't have the kind of reaction to Boston that I had to Chicago and Washington, D.C. Well, the Pittsburgh listeners uh, that are my family are going to have to disagree about Pittsburgh. I but... do like I do <laughs> like Pittsburgh and I've had great times in Pittsburgh. I just it's not a town like Chicago or New York. It's I, just not. I will agree. Yeah. The bridges and the being surrounded by rivers and having that wonderful bluff overlooking the city. It's wonderful. There is wonderful theater there, but it, it feels like a small town. It, it does have a bit of personality to it where, you know, I've toured so much and you see every medium sized town in the country and they're almost all identical down to the Starbucks and the Walgreens. They're right. just identical. Um, so you, we did, uh, as we aforementioned, we did Sunset Boulevard together, um, but you had done it pr previous to that production, correct? You know, I, I got to do the first national. They they asked me to replace into it the day that Betty Buckley went into the show. And I, I've known Betty since I was a kid. We worked together in the 60s at Casa Manana, and I would have killed to go into the show. But the day that they called me, I was up at good speed, and I was opening a show the next day. They would never have let me out of the contract. And even if they had, I would have screwed the production. I just couldn't do it. And it would have thrown me into this high, high, high powered situation of being opposite Betty instead of getting to work on the part. So in a way, it was a blessing because then when the first national came, they offered it to me. I got to rehearse it properly. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And being on that monumental set when it flew in, uh, there, it was a truly indescribable experience. Riding that set on New Year's Eve, pouring champagne for Norma Desmond, it was incomparable. So I got to do that for a year on the road, and it was imprinted in me in that way. So I thought, what is Eric going to do without the grandiosity of the world's largest mansion flying through the air? And he solved it. I mean, the way he solved the problem of the set at Signature was so freaking brilliant. I mean, by having the 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 staircase come out of the sky and not having to create the rest of the mansion. It just, it was freaking brilliant. Well, you know, uh, there was something so magical and is magical about Eric and the signature um, theater, the way that I mean, that's the reason me and Stephen were always so excited to just kind of live here was because everything that Eric touched in that space in the garage or the new space was so re-envisioned and thought out. Yes. Um, and of course, I, of course, loved every night. This sounds kind of like a little bit of a geek in me, but I was so happy that every night I was Hawkeye and got to see a part of the show from on, on top of the audience mm, that, mm, that, mm. No one, that no one else could see, you know? Yes, yes. Okay, we have, we have a little surprise uh, person coming in calling right now. Ah! 
Let's see if let's see if this surprise person works. Hello. Hello. Who is this? Uh, this is Susan Derry. <laughs> Hi, Susan Derry. Oh, is this perhaps the famous Ed Dixon? Well, you know, dear, it just might be. <laughs> Susan, we were knock me over with Su a Susan, we were just talking about sunset. And your and your knockout Betty Schaefer. <laughs> How about Ed knockout performance? Well, you were both knockout performances. And DB, let's not forget DB. Oh. And of course Flo. Yeah. Goes without saying. <laughs> well, it's always nice to say it. Flo Rock. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, we just wanted to pop Susan in to say hi and, and kept, you know, just a quick little touch base. Hi, Susan. I love you. I just saw your beautiful face on the Facebook. Hi, Ed. It's so nice to hear your voice. I am so happy you are on the show. You Me are just too. such a, a shining light in our business. It's amazing. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Love you. Susan, Susan what are you up to these days? Well, um, I am recording my debut album. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we're working on uh, getting complete funding. We're so excited, right, Matt? We're, we've made it to halfway through. We have. Yeah, it's really, really, really thrilling. Um, yeah, a dream, a dream come true. In fact, it was something I was dreaming about back in the the very first time that I met Ed, which was, um, I don't know if you would remember Ed, um, but I was a lowly chorister in um, that production of On a Clear Day that we did with Encores. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and you were so wonderful in that. And, oh, and we got to reconnect a few times after that. You were amazing. Thank you, dear. Thank you. <laughs> well, we love you, Susan. We'll talk to you soon. Enjoy tonight, Ed. Love you. Bye-bye. Love you, darling. Bye-bye. Yeah, we, me and, you know, Susan lives like, you know, two seconds from our house. You know, it's so funny bringing that, um, that clear day up. It was with Kristen Chenoweth, who I've known since the very beginning. And we had this terrible director who'd, who we had, you know, 20 hours to put the show. We had this terrible director who'd only done plays. And I was playing one of those, you know, one of those English gentlemen who was just so confused by everything. And the only thing that made it work was the, the accent. And this idiot kept saying to me, I can't understand you. I can't understand you. I'm like, darling, that's the whole point. <laughs> And I'm just thinking, what am I going to do with this imbecile who doesn't get it? So I'm I'm passing Kristen's dressing room one day, and she goes, Ed, Ed. And I stuck my head in, and she goes, Ed, that director's put me off my timing. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, honey, when you're putting Kristen Chenoweth off her timing, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Ed, let's talk about your show that was at Signature in the Small Space, Georgie. Yes. <laughs> 
It also was in New York in a small space. Was it was it about the same size? Um, it was smaller in New York. It was a really intimate, the Davenport Theater. Um, and you know, it won the Drama Desk. Right. I mean, getting to do it for, it actually started, I did part of Georgie for the big investors in the theater. There was a night where they were celebrating the people who really participate. And Eric asked me if I would do a portion of it for them. And I did, and it was such a big hit. And they all called in the next day and said, oh my gosh, that's so interesting. So then he books the show and I picked up a producer as a result of that, who then opened it in New York. I mean, just, I have so much to thank Eric for. And, and of course, Eric directed it in New York and so much to thank Signature for, and I will always love both of them. But Georgie was one of the most special, well, it's one of the most special things of my life. It was about one of the largest experiences in my life, the murder of a dear friend. And I sat on the information for, I don't know, 30 years before I was able to talk about it. And finally, I write this show doing homage to my friend who was murdered. And it just struck a chord with everybody. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to tell something that's that personal, um, it was funny how how it impacted people in way like two women came up to me after one of the backers auditions and they looked like nice housewives from New Jersey, you know, and I thought, what the hell did they make of this sordid show business perverted story? And they said to me, oh, my God, this reminded me of my divorce. I didn't know my husband at all. And I'm like, holy crap, if this can have the ability to impact people from such a different point of view, that this is really something. Yeah. And, and also you um, do you always I'm, I'm asking a question for anybody who's listening who actually wants to be a, a, a writer. Do you after you've done so many things that you've proven yourself as a writer, are there, are there less steps in getting produced because you now have kind of shown that you have, uh, maybe you have money people that you can call that are already kind of fans or do you always have to go back into that room and just do a reading of, of the show? It's always impossible. And each impossible happening happens in a different way. So it's not like you can come up with a formula. Uh, so like every time you finish something, it, you've run this incredible marathon, you've gotten it up, but then you're completely back to square one. With me, it usually starts with, I start calling up close friends and say, oh, listen to this thing I'm doing, blah, 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 over the phone. And the next thing I invite them over to the house, oh, listen to this thing I'm doing, blah, 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 blah. And then eventually it reached the point that I was off book with Georgie. I'd invite people over, they'd sit on my bed and I'd do the whole show for them. And it, that transferred into, we started doing it in rehearsal halls for, for people with money and for possible producers. And I don't even know how many of those we did. I, I thought we had the theater lined up three times. We'd come up with the money, we'd come up with the theater, and then at the last minute, the theater that we had, we suddenly lost, or they suddenly were asking for twice as much money as they'd been asking for before, and we didn't have it. 
And so by the third time we got it booked in the Davenport, it was hard to believe that it was actually happening. And I didn't believe it until we actually moved the show in and started. I, I see that and saw that you were on the tour of Whorehouse. Oh, my God. Now, when you go on tour with something like Whorehouse, do you ever have an experience where you're in a city and it's not... Not necessarily picketed, but like, is there anything was there anything controversial about doing that show? Well, you know, I did it because it was Anne fricking Margaret. I mean, to be on tour with Anne Margaret. I mean, I, honestly, I never got over being starstruck. But they they did a publicity shoot with her reclining on a star, just covered with a sheet. And she's obviously naked. Well, they made a big billboard out of it. And when we got to Omaha, the, the city was saying, you can't have that sign up. <laughs> and it's perfectly tame. I mean, honest to God. Maybe it's because it had whorehouse in the title. But I mean, she was so unbelievably fantastic. I never stopped being starstruck. Not ever, ever, ever. On my 50th birthday, I came walking into the theater. She walked up to me. She turned herself into Marilyn Monroe and she sang, Happy birthday, Mr. Governor. She grabbed my lapels and kissed me right on the lips. And I just, I, I, it was indescribable. It's freaking Anne Margaret. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. We were in, um, oh, that crazy place in Kalamazoo. Uh, we had just arrived in Kalamazoo. We'd been on a boat coming across the Great Lake all day. And the next morning, my phone started ringing at eight o'clock in the morning. I'm like, why the fuck is the maid calling me? And I finally pick up the phone and I hear, they've attacked us. The World Trade Centers are down to the ground. We're at war. And I go across the hall to one of the chorus boys and everybody's crammed in his room and we're watching the towers come down on TV. So the, we couldn't do the show that night or the next night or the next night or the next night. And finally, when we came back, everybody was so distraught and destroyed and screwed up. And here we are doing this ridiculous show, Whorehouse. And... Um, we do the show somehow, and we get to the end, and Anne Margaret stops the curtain call, and she asks the audience, will you all please stand and join me in God Bless America? <gasps> and she starts singing God Bless America. The whole audience is standing. I'm seeing old men who are obviously in World War II with their hands over their hearts and weeping. I never got a note out. And she continued to do that for weeks afterwards. I mean, to have shared that experience with her, I mean, mother of God. Well, speaking of Anne Margaret vehicles, so the film Grumpier Old Men was turned, <laughs> was, was turned into a musical uh, semi-recently. Yes. And I remember thinking when I heard it was gonna be a musical, God, Ed Dixon would be so freaking perfect. <laughs> Lo and you know, behold. 
I mean, Hal Linden playing the grandpa was 90. He was so fucking hilarious and every line was about sex. And I was paired opposite Sally Struthers, who is just one of the most delicious people who has ever lived. One matinee day, I'm in her dressing room, which she keeps at about 30 degrees. It was freezing cold. And one of the chorus girls is in there and we're talking about Anne Margaret. And I said, let's call her right now. So I call Anne Margaret and I'm, I've got my arm around Sally Struthers and the chorus girl is saying, is this really my life? You're calling <laughs> Anne Margaret. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and we missed her. So we both left her a message. And when I was in the Dominican Republic, I'm in a four-star hotel overlooking the Caribbean. My phone rings. I look down. Oh, my God. It's Anne Margaret. She <laughs> lost my phone number. <laughs> she finally found it and called me. And, of course, then I had to call Sally. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Was that, was that your, latest, um, your, your latest trip? Yes, it, we did it. I, I guess it's almost two years ago now, but we made a recording and the recording just never came out. And I thought, well, I, I guess it's not going to happen. But then it finally came out just about a week ago. So I finally got to hear it. I mean, that was I made my first uh, cast album in 1971 and <laughs> This thing came out in 2021, 50 years later. I'm like, okay, kids. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Hey, Ed, talk about your book, Secrets of a Life on Stage and Off. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a I have a dear friend, Nick Cavara, who was running a blog for producers, I don't know, about six or seven years ago. And he started saying, your stories are so great. Start sending me stories. So I'd write down a story and send it to him. And I'd no sooner send him one that he'd say, now send me the next one. And the reason the book took place was just he just kept razzing me. Send me another chapter. Send me another chapter. And I knew I had to do it because... I had done No No Nanette with Ruby Keeler and Busby Berkeley and Patsy Kelly. And, and those stories of working with those people from another generation, from another time, I knew they were going to evaporate into the air if I didn't write them down. And I segued from that into opening the Kennedy Center with Leonard Bernstein in mass, which he was writing as we went along and which he was coaching us on on a daily basis and conducting us. And I thought, if I don't write that down, that's going to disappear forever. But getting past that, then there's 50 years of show business backstage stories, but the real thing was I became terribly drug addicted in the 1980s and I survived it and I put my career back together. And I, I've been sober since 1991 and I've accomplished more since 1991 than I did in the whole career before my life fell apart. And I thought people need to know that it's possible to really, really screw up and that you were allowed to go on. And for that reason, I, I was determined to complete the book and I'm so glad I did. Well, I wanted to get 
the book before the interview so I could read it and ask you more things. But we might just have to do a, a, a like a second part interview with Ed after I read the book because I know I'm going to have questions. <laughs> I mean, there it there's so much. Some of the stories about No No Nanette are so freaking unbelievable. I, there's so much of my life that when I look at it, I'm like. Just like that auditioning for Les Mis story, that can't be the way it happened, but that is the way. I mean, let's let's go back to like 1969. I was in Casa Manana doing a show with Betty Buckley, and she was just about to come to New York and open in 1776. And I'm rehearsing in the green room, and the green room phone rings. It was one of those old-fashioned wooden booths in the corner, like from the old days. And Betty answers the phone. She goes, Ed, it's for you. I pick up the phone and it's Buster Davis, the infamous musical director from Broadway. And he says, hi, honey, want to do a Broadway show? <laughs> now, I had auditioned for him a year before for a show called um, Cherry, which was the musical version of Bus Stop that was going to star Paula Wayne. He hired me because in those days, the musical director had the power to hire the whole chorus. They didn't have to run it by the director. Seems impossible today, but that's the way it was back then. He, They lost their money. The show didn't happen. He put my name in a file, and when he was casting No, No, Nanette, he freaking called my old number. It was disconnected. He called the union. The union said his number's disconnected, but he, we've got a contract on him at Casa Manana. Here's the number. He called it and offered me no, no, Nanette over the phone. I mean, that can't be. I, wow. I had a Volkswagen van. I got in the Volkswagen van and drove it to New York and did my first show on Broadway. I mean, I didn't believe it was real until I was in the room and I signed the contract. I thought I was going to get there and Buster was going to put his hand on my knee and that was going to be that. But wow. Nope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always get annoyed when I see films like that where I'm like, <laughs> that is just not what, what goes on. And it isn't. <laughs> it truly isn't. But it did. It did it, happen. Yeah, yeah. You definitely have a a magic about you, Mr. Dixon, that uh, people can feel when they are around you. You have a miraculous life and we're so happy to, to have spoken to you this evening. I'm serious about a part two after I read that book, Ed. <laughs> I am so up for it because I can't wait to hear what you think. Because I mean, there's just unbelievable stuff in that book. I'm gonna say you made it up. Hey, Ed, <laughs> when you're a New Yorker like you are, truly, do you have favorite actual spaces to perform in? Like, are there certain theaters that feel like, oh, I love that to, to perform in that theater? It, it's, it's really funny. I've been, the, the themes this evening seems to be luck. I'm just so lucky. And it, it's a miracle to get a Broadway show. So it's a miracle to get another one. It's a miracle to get another one. And I've done, a, what? 15, but the idea that I would like one space more than another, it's such a miracle when a space opens in New York and asks you to be in it that 
for that moment, that is certainly going to be your favorite space, un unless it's just completely unworkable. Well, I had a favorite space because it was so unique. And I think we saw you at the zipper. Oh, my God. That was one of my truly if the zipper still existed, I would say yes, that we went in as an audience and I was like, what is happening? We are sitting in these seats, car yes. seats. Yes. It was just so amazing. I had an audition one day at the Plymouth Theater. The Plymouth is a straight playhouse and it's tiny. And when you were on the stage of the Plymouth, it just feels like freaking heaven. You're looking at these old world boxes and old world decorations and it's tiny. And ever since that audition, I've been thinking what I want is to do a tiny musical at the Plymouth, even though they don't traditionally do that in the Plymouth. But in that sense, that's a place. And I, also the Belasco. The Belasco is the most unbelievably beautiful old world house, but it's only beautiful from the front. I did an audition there for Andrew Lloyd Webber. And when you go backstage, it, it is not nice. It's like something you'd see in a movie about vaudeville. It looks like it's like 1900 backstage. I love that. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, because most of the spaces were turned into spaces from other warehouses and whatnot, right? All of the houses in New York were uh, old houses from the old days. They all had the old ropes from the old days, all of them. Wow. Yeah. Uh, um, and I'm going to, before we go, I just want to ask you a few questions about um, now, you know, during the pandemic, lots of people took on like, you know, I'm going to learn French. I'm going to learn how to bake cookies. I'm going to learn. Did you this past year take on that one thing that's like, I learned how to? No, a, a curious thing. I had worked ceaselessly the year before the pandemic. And I just went through a thing. I called my agents. I said, I don't know what's going on with me, but I don't feel like doing anything. So don't send me up. And they're like, well, you know, you've earned the right to do whatever you feel like. Just let us know when you feel like it. And about a week later, the pandemic hit. And I'm like, well, that was good timing. So at that particular moment, what I wanted was to get away from the world and to just take a complete break. I, um, I did continue to teach online, but other than that, I had no ambitions to do anything. I can't believe how many things came up over the course of the year, like getting to do that play with New Jersey Rep. Um, just I, so many readings happened, so and I just, I wasn't trying to do anything. And it's only just like in the last month that I started thinking, well, I, I do want to do some things. And I, I'm not allowed to tell you what they are, but I just booked a movie and I, um, I'm on hold for a TV series, and which could very easily happen. And uh, I wasn't ready before. And now the, the movie's definitely happening. We start that on the 20th. And uh, I think that the series is going to happen. And I just... I don't know what's next. I, I really don't. Well, it's it, I think with the luck you have, I mean, and the amazing experience, I mean, I guess whatever comes your way, you're, you're very well prepared for. 
And you know, I wanted a break. I got a break. I took a two month vacation to the Caribbean and stayed in four star hotels. I just, I, when I went to the Caribbean, it, oh, I left by accident on January 6th, the day of the insurrection. I was in the air when all that happened. And I thought, I don't give a fuck if I ever come back. Yeah, of course. But, you know, two months is long enough for a vacation. I'll tell you that. At yeah. The, at the end of two months, I was ready to see my little apartment again. Stephen has made a little wish box for all of our guests. This kind of... This kind of was birthed because Susan Derry is doing this uh, debut album called I Wish It So. Uh -huh. And when I saw her cabaret of, it was called I Wish It So, I said, I called her and I said, Susan, this needs to go in the studio. This was a beautiful, beautiful evening. And so I'm helping her produce it. Oh, um, fantastic. But um, Stephen would like to know if you could have one wish, whether it be for uh, our business, our world, um, anything you can think of yourself, yourself. We are, um, just putting all of these wishes in a box, just as some of, uh, a wonderful little mojo thing for us right now that everyone's wishes are all together. Um, can you think of anything that you would want to wish for besides maybe that, um, movie deal or maybe, maybe the, I see the Ed Dixon production company coming out soon. <laughs> That's not the way I'm thinking these days. I, I've been so goal-oriented my whole life. Oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I've got to accomplish that. Oh, I've got to be in this. And that's not where I am now. What I want is to be peaceful. I want to be the best person that I can be. I want to share the, the best of me with as many people as I can. And I don't mean that in a show businessy way. I mean, just the people in my sphere that I come up against, I, I want to be that person who makes it a little better. That, that's perfect. You know, whether it's the barista that I'm dealing with or the gro grocery clerk or, and every day I go to the park and I feed the birds and the squirrels. And that is as important as anything I've ever done in my life. And that gives me as much joy as anything has ever given me. Well, thank you, my friend, for giving, for feeding us uh, a beautiful hour uh, of Del delicious stories. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is such a pleasure for me today. Oh, us too. Us too, Eddie. Thank you. And we'll be back in touch about round two. Thank you. Okay. Love you. Love right. you Love too. You. Have a Enjoy the book. Okay. <laughs>